The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and losses may be made. Welcome to Inside Track. Today's conversation is extremely exciting and packed with lots of wonderful insights. We're going to change tack slightly, Ashley. We're going to zoom out and look at the investment consulting landscape in the UK from the eyes of a true industry veteran. Very, very pleased to have uh, David Clare, partner from Barnett Waddingham, join us this morning. David doesn't really need an introduction. He has had an incredible career as a leader in the investment consulting industry. David's contributions are too many to mention. Uh, most people know David really, really well. He has led various teams throughout his career, advised various different types of clients and with different liability profiles, various different return and risk requirements. So real wide variety of experience. He's mentored not only people in his own business, but very generously mentored various leaders within and outside the, the finance industry. But most importantly, this conversation comes at a very, very special moment as after just short of 47 years of continuous service, I'm going to say that again because it is, it is so rare in our industry, just short of 47 years of continuous service, David is looking to retirement. So thank you, David, for joining us and welcome to Inside Track. Thank you. Thank you, Jazz. I just hope what I can say uh, actually lives up to that fantastic introduction. So, uh, so thank you very much. No, we're very excited, David. And, and let's, let's dive straight in. So I think, I think in terms of a, a great place to start would be the things that really stand out about you, David, which differentiate you, I guess, in the industry. You know, one of the things you do really well is you ask questions that sound simple, but they're extremely effective in getting to the nub of any topic being discussed. Uh, and I think you know, it'd be great to get your perspective on that. But before we do, let's go back to the beginning. You know, how did the consulting industry start and at what point did you enter the industry? Please take us through that historical uh, paradigm. Okay, thank you, Jazz. So in, in trying to answer your first question, I think there are some secrets into how I got involved in this industry right to the very beginning. So if I go back to, I mean, I started, I mean, I actually joined the Institute of Actuaries when I was 17. I started doing life office work, but the key point for me was joining the pensions industry, which was in 1981. And at the beginning of the 1980s, I was training to be a pensions uh, so actuary. A key moment came in, in 1984 when I attended my first ever fund manager conference done by an organization called Confederation Life. It was led by an individual called John Finch, who was a mentor to me for many, many years and indeed worked with me subsequently. But also in 1984, we had a particular client that we did all the actuarial work for in, in the UK. And they were looking for an idea as to how we could sum up their performance from their investment managers on a single one-pager. And we came up with an idea and we, we approached that. And this seemed to really uh, sort of catch on. And ultimately, the company that I was working for at the time, which was Anthony Gibbs Pension Services, ultimately became HSBC Actuaries and Consultants, allowed me to develop this idea into a performance monitoring report and we eventually launched that in 1987 and the, the key behind what we were doing in that performance monitoring report was taking that starting point and saying to myself if I were a trustee what would I like to hear 
because at the time a lot of the reports were in, in my view written by investment professionals for other investment professionals and it was all based on uh, sort of, uh, league tables and masses and masses of uh, sort of figures and okay to a mathematician you can see what a table is trying to tell you but i was trying to take it from that trustee's perspective and so what we came up with and we eventually launched this service called image in in, in 1987 and it was based around seven pictures that told the story. And so when we did this, we went into ad advising the trustees and talking to them. And this was really the, the beginnings of what became the investment consulting uh, sorry, industry was that we, we told them what the performance was, but we were very keen to tell the story behind uh, sort of the figures. And to tell the story behind the figures meant that you needed to spend quality time with the investment managers. And this is then, you know, back to the, to the time I spent with John Finch, when he was at Confederation Life, is actually understanding what we referred to as the three Ps. And on the, the, you know, the retail side or even in the business of the time, the Ps was really performance. Performance, performance, performance was, was everything. And really what we're trying to do in looking at the story behind the performance was to come back to what the three Ps we look at now and, and did do really from the late 1980s onwards, which is people, process and philosophy. So it's really understanding the, the story behind the figures. And that's what led into this performance monitoring report, which was to help the trustees saying, look, if I was in your uh, sort of shoes, these are the key aspects that I would like uh, to look at. And because we use pictures and we found a way of actually how we could put graphs into charts and in, into reports, sorry. And remember this was 1987. So when we did cut and paste, we actually did, we cut them out. We, we would print the, the, the charts, we would then cut them out. We then get a print stick and we would actually paste the back of the chart and physically stick it into the chart and then photocopy it. So that in many respects is where the, the whole expression of cut and paste came from. We actually did it with scissors and print sticks. And that was able to incorporate graphs and pictures. And that really helped trustees because they could see what we were talking about rather than just looking at a, a sort of table of uh, sort of figures. And around the same time we had, for me anyway, a real seminal paper that Roger Irwin uh, sort of wrote called How to Choose Tomorrow's Successful Manager Today. And that was really, again, what quite a number of consultancies were starting to do with people like uh, Paul Haynes and Tim Gardner and uh, Roger Irwin and Nick, Nick Fitzpatrick were looking at this idea of, of establishing the investment side. I mean, most were sort of actuaries by qualification, but actuaries who also had a, a real interest on the investment uh, side. And it was that that led to the beginnings of what then became the investment consulting uh, sort of industry. So fast forward to 1992, I then persuaded uh, sort of Anthony Gibbs to let me set up dedicated investment consulting practice. And that took uh, some of the actuaries, and we basically moved the work on the investment uh, into a specialist uh, sort of unit, which which really was just copying what some of the other uh, firms were doing uh, at the same time. It's, it's really really interesting, David. I mean, uh, a lot of younger people in the industry probably associate the Pensions Act of '95 as a sort of a seminal moment when the consulting industry took off in earnest. But in reality, as you say, uh, the journey began much earlier than that. 
And there's something there's something in there you, you also said, David, that's worth picking on, which is putting yourself in the shoes of a client and a trustee and telling a story behind the performance. And I think most customer-centric businesses now see it as common wisdom that you know the 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 best way to start is by thinking about the position of the customer rather than what you're thinking of as a as as a provider. So it's quite interesting that you know you use that to basically simplify and tell a good story, which obviously, as people know, is a bit of a bit of a USP of yours. So yeah, very interesting. On that point, Jazz, about the Pensions Act 1995. I mean, it's it's interesting when you go back to what we were doing before that, because this idea of putting yourself in the minds of a sort of trustee. Because when we were doing this in the late 1980s, pensions were off balance sheet items. The idea of coming along doing uh, sort of investment consultancy or encouraging the trustees to spend time looking purely at the investment side and what what, what we and, and a number of others were doing was pushing this idea that if you want to set your investment strategy, you really need to understand the nature of your liabilities. Nowadays, we call it liability-driven investment, but even even in those days, it was looking at the nature of your uh, sort of liabilities. You're looking at the attitude of the, the trustees. You, you're also talking to the employer. It was an off-balance sheet uh, sort of item. But I think the key aspect was that there was no legislative requirement to do anything. There was no legislative requirement on trustees to take investment advice. And that was a good discipline for those involved because you had to go and explain to trustees the benefit of what you were doing. Of course, by the time the Pensions Act uh, 1995 came on, your balance, pension funds had moved from off-balance sheet to on-balance sheet, but also brought in this legislative requirement to take investment ad- ad- advice. And in some respects, that did miss a little bit because you know, the, the, almost like the original consultants had to go to explain to trustees why there was a benefit in doing it. Post-Pensions Act, it was, you know, there's a benefit in doing this, plus you've got to do it anyway. Um, and so I think remembering you know, why why there was a benefit in doing it in the first place is not too, uh, too bad an idea. The, the, the other one I wanted to mention, Jazz, if you don't mind, was when I was thinking about this is some of the, you know, what were some of the topics that we were discussing in, in, in the late 80s, early 90s, that maybe today you never even thought, um, you know, there was ever a beginning to all of this. And two, two of the big topics that we were discussing in, in the late 80s, one was this idea of pooled, uh, pooled investment versus segregated uh, investment. There was, there was very much having your own account was regarded as the way forward. And if your pension scheme got up to, I think it was about 20 million or 50 million in size, then you could be promoted to first division investment strategy and therefore go segregated. Therefore, you had your own UK equity portfolio. You could see which equities your manager was investing in. And therefore, the managers would come to the trustee meeting and spend a long time discussing individual stocks. And the chair of the trustees would be rapidly writing down uh, the next stock pick for his own portfolio. And pooled management in those days was really regarded as second division uh, stuff and and it was really um, stuff that you only did until you were large enough to go uh, segregated. Fast forward to today, you you see you know, multi-billion schemes which are nearly all nearly all pooled um, in, in in their approach. So it, you know, that's been one huge change. 
And the second one I, I, I was reminding myself of was this whole passive versus active discussion. And that's, if memory serves me right, the dates go back to something like 1987 when this new little concept was being pushed by uh, legal in general, something that they'd seen in, in the US, which, which was this idea of passive or index uh, tracking. And in particular, the, the way especially in those days, Legal General had a particular contract called the AF80 contract. It was a bundled pensions product and quite a lot of schemes were getting to the point of unbundling the AF80 contract into its individual uh, components, which meant that Legal General were potentially losing a lot of assets under management because they weren't, sorry, Legal General, but they weren't the best in those days at active uh, sort of management. So they came up with this idea of using this new idea called uh, passive uh, sort of management. And the idea was that if you uh, took the money out of the AF80 contract, there would be a transfer value, but they would pay an enhancement to this transfer value if you stayed with legal in general. And, the, and what a great idea was that you came out of this contract, you went, you matched the asset allocation of the average as a pension fund, you put it into individual index tracking, therefore you got very close to median performance. You then got a 1% enhancement for the first five years that you kept the money, which gave you median plus 1% at much lower cost, which was the holy grail in those days of almost guaranteed upper quartile uh, performance. And so a lot of money did come out of the AF contract, go into the index tracking, and then you look at legal in general today and you see what a huge successful business they built from what is effectively in the late 1980s was a defensive move to stop money flowing out of legal general when we unbundled the AF80 uh, contract. And that's 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 a perfect segue, David, into you know, as you put it put it nicely, the topics on the investment agenda back in the day were probably complicated at the time around pooled and segregated investments. But if you fast forward to today, the investment world is a lot more uncertain. The to, to your point about legal in general as a case in point, the investment management styles have evolved significantly. The rise of quant investing, sustainability. When when you when you sit there, David, and think about you know you're facing off to trustees, pension boards, independent advisors, and you're trying to make investment decisions in the face of incomplete information, fast media, potentially scary headlines. And how do you how do you make that process comfortable for for what is a multi stakeholder network who are trying to advise and get consensus building in terms of moving forward? I mean it goes back to the you know is is investment consulting easy? And the answer is no. It's a lot harder than uh people uh, realize or especially when you first go in go into it. I think the basic is that you are trying to give advice based on what's going to happen to the in the future, knowing that you're going to be ultimately judged with the benefit of uh, 2020 hindsight. That can be frightening because what that can lead to is indecision because despite some clients thinking you do have perfect vision as to what's going to happen over the next uh, so a couple of years, you don't. You're still trying to make that best uh, so, uh, so estimate. And you know, if you get to the point that everybody agrees 
on what should be the right thing to do, then that nearly always leads into a real crisis because most markets can't cope with when everybody agrees that everybody should be doing the same thing at the same time, as we probably found out last uh, September <laughs> and, and October. So y you've got this issue that you, you don't have perfect hindsight. You, you're trying to model what's going to happen for the uh, for the future. Models are nowhere near as reliable and as insightful as uh, I think mathematicians who design these models think they are because life has a tendency to always come along and do the opposite of what you're trying to uh, sort of model and you, you you are you are trying your your best to make a decision and making no decision or putting it off until you've got more information at times is the worst decision you can do uh, sometimes you know the direction of travel you may not know the exact destination, but it is better to at least start the process. I know we were talking before, Jazz, about a case many, many years ago where the, the client had clearly a too high exposure to uh, sort of equities. The advisor at the time knew it had to come down significantly. Um, there was a keenness to get to know the exact answer. We knew it was somewhere between maybe 40 or 50, I forget the exact figures, but we knew it was somewhere between 40 and 50% would have been a, a better answer. And rather than actually, you, 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 there are two ways. You wait until you have all the information, which takes a long time in, in, to realize that the exact answer was 43.7, and therefore let's not move from 80 until we know the exact answer. Whereas in reality, the better one would have been say, well, we don't know the exact position but we know it's a lot less than 80. So let's take it down to 55% um, to start off with, because at least you, you, you're heading in the right direction and then tweak it as when the information comes through. So I think that, that don't be frightened about making a decision because making no decision in many respects is the worst, can often be the worst decision, but also then to not be frightened and I know when we were discussing before about your know, one of my pet hate discussions is this comment about you're making a u-turn and how you know bad it is to do u-turn I don't think it is I think that what you do is you make a decision and then you constantly ch check that decision against new information coming through and that if information means that you need to take a, a slightly different track or even maybe go in a completely different uh, sort of direction, then you shouldn't be frightened to do that. You know, in this pressure, this is, oh, you've you've taken a U-turn, that must be, you know, uh, must be wrong. And, and therefore, you know, you may realize that you're going in the wrong direction, but you don't want to appear to be losing face by then changing your mind. That's the best way to actually lose face is by refusing to change direction when everybody around you realizes you're going uh, in the wrong direction. So I think that's the that that the hobby is, is make a decision, move in the direction, constantly stay alert to other information uh, coming in, and then having the don't be frightened to change, have the confidence to say, well, now I've got a bit more information. This is the way I think we should now now go. I think as a as a consultant in my prior life, I certainly have a huge amount of respect for the the point about you know it, it is not easy to give advice in in an imperfect world, and I think I think David, the industry doesn't always fully appreciate the important role actually that that consultants play as as stewards of independent thinking. I, I think that that point gets lost sometimes because any investor is emotionally and behaviorally 
uh, prone to responding to short-term information. And I think one of the things the industry always underappreciates is the work the consulting community does to bring genuine medium to long-term thinking. Uh, and I think, and I think the, the market would be a, a less good place actually without the without the fully developed investment consulting industry that we have now. So I think I think it's only fair we we appreciate and um, uh, and acknowledge that. But also I think I think David, it, as as the industry is evolving, there's different flavors of advice coming through: delegated, independent, part delegated, portfolio delegation, uh, etc. But nonetheless. The, what makes a good advisor shouldn't really change across all of those models. And as you look back, David, and, and you know, you do a lot of mentoring of of people within the industry. What, what what would you say makes a sort of a good advisor? So I think it's a it's a balance between four or five attributes. No, number one is the ability to be able to listen and listen constructively, so that when a client or somebody is explaining what their issue is, genuinely listen. And and if you ask questions, ask probing questions, but then give the person time uh, to listen um, or, or time to talk. I, I do love that expression that you have uh, two ears and, and one mouth, and you should use that in that proportion um, when the client is explaining their issue. Uh, so to you. So number one is d- develop your listening skills. And then after that, it becomes a balance between uh, what I say is educate when education is needed, teach when teaching is needed, advise when advising is needed, tell when tell is needed. So it's a balance between doing the basic education, then moving into teaching about something, then getting to the point where you're giving the advice, you're giving lots of different options, but also the balance at the end is then helping by almost telling what the starting point for the final uh, process towards the decision. So in some respects, I used to call it, you know, here are three or four options. The trustees would then turn to me and say, well, well, what would you do? And I said, well, you know, here's my line in the sand. This is, this is what I would, would do. It does not necessarily mean that you have to follow that but at least it gives a starting point and so to what it makes a really good advisor i did have a client once that did say to me that what they liked about me as an advisor was that i advised um so that you you got that balance between listening educating giving options and then then telling and the the art is that that balance between those four or five differs by client by time, by situation. Sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong. But but the other aspect to me of a good advisor is that when you go away, you reflect on the meeting you've just had. You give yourself a pat on the back on things that went well, and you go, right, I'll try that again. But you also become very alive to things that didn't go quite as well otherwise uh, went badly, and then think through what could you what could you try uh, sort of next time. And the last point I would say, what makes a good advisor, and this ironically is harder when we do things more virtually, is w- watch your audience. You know, they, they do say that 
the, the power of communication is about 50, 55% body language and 30% tone of voice and only 10, 15%. And I'm sure that doesn't add up to 100, but you know what I mean, is the actual words. And so when you're in a trustee meeting and giving advice, watch your audience as well. You know, not only listen to how they react, but watch how they react. Because there's many a time when you, you're saying to somebody, do you actually understand this? And they they nod and say yes and the body language says we actually haven't got a clue what you've just gone through and and you know it's trying to get that you know and you, and you pick up that the, the nodding but the not the saying yes but they don't really mean yes then to, well you know, let me just kind of kind of just go over the key points again and that just takes time to learn how to read an audience and i think and i think david you know you you probably agree that in, in a virtual world or a hybrid world you know, picking those nuances when you have uh, attendees in the room and some darling on screen is actually much harder. So, so another bit of uh, honing we're all having to do in this new world of operating post-COVID. I mean, a virtual world is 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 great in the number of attendees you can get to a meeting and the speed with which you can have a meeting or you can easily get the you know the US based expert to dial into New York to uh, the meeting so there's a huge number of advantages and especially on the sustainability because you're not flying around <laughs> all over the place but on the other hand it does mean there's a little bit more responsibility on the audience that if they really don't understand is to is to say so because you are you know best you can only maybe uh, so pick up their facial movements. You can't actually, you can't read the room, and and quite often you can only see the person you're actually talking to. You don't, you can't necessarily see how others in the room uh, are, are are reacting. But all new skills to learn. Indeed, indeed. And and I guess David, when you zoom out from sort of you know what makes a good advisor to to what would be your your advice to us as an industry, the, the asset management industry and the consulting industry and, you know, you know the, the key players who, who all collaborate together effectively, what would be your, your guidance to, to all of us? It was interesting. I was doing my uh, Zwift retirement ride on, on Sunday that two of my colleagues had, org had organized and we had the same discussion and admitted we were trying to cycle hard at the same time. So it's a bit more of a shortened conversation, but it came down to uh, two words of openness and honesty. You know, this industry for years has been based on the the relationship building that you have with people. And at the end of the day, whether you're an advisor or whether you're an asset manager or sometimes the, 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 the distinction between the two gets a little bit blurred, you are still ultimately all working for the same entity, which is, you know, in, in, in the case of DB pensions, the trustees of the scheme, you all ultimately want uh, the same outcome. You ultimately want... The, all the benefits to be paid on time and in full, so you know at, at a cost that the sponsoring employer can, can afford. So you, you all ultimately have the same as our outcome, and managing money and advising on managing money is not easy. And you know, within that environment, that you're being being very open and being very honest, um, it is much easier to to support a manager, for example, during a tough time, if they are genuinely honest about the the issues that uh, they're having, and so that openness, honesty, the transparency, and you know, trust in each other, ultimately, to me, is the bedrock of actually how we should all work uh, together. 
It's also, it's also recognizing as well at the end of the day, it's also a very competitive industry as 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 well. And I was I was thinking on about this going on a walk a few few days ago about almost the inbred competitiveness of the human race that it, it wants to, to be better than than others. And you know, at times within maybe pension fund investment, there is a level of return which is good enough to meet the objectives? Does it therefore have to be the best? Does it have to beat the index? Does it have to be better than you know, somewhere else? Or is there a point where you know, these are my objectives, this is what I want to achieve, if I can achieve that, does it matter that you know, somebody down the road uh, could have been even better, I've achieved my objective? And, and how, how do you think that evolves, David, as, as uh, more and more types of clients are now leaning on to consultants to to provide investment advice, whether it be insurers, wealth managers, endowments and foundations, do you think fundamentally the approach remains the same or there sort of certain tweaks you bring to the discussion? I think it goes back to what we're trying when the whole investment consultancy industry uh, started. And I, I still think it's as right to this, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to today, which is understand what your objectives are when when you sit down you have a portfolio of assets whether it's in wealth management whether it's defined contribution whether it's db whether you're advising uh, an employer spending more time on fundamentally understanding what your objectives are and generally understanding what 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 those objectives what what's your risk tolerance what is your time frame you know, what are the views of all the uh, the stakeholders, and and to do a, a real proper and sincere objective setting exercise actually takes quite some time. If you've actually got a very clear, or in theory, if you have a very clear idea what your objectives are, and all the stakeholders agree, then actually the whole asset allocation, manager selection should actually be the easy part. Because what, what you are then doing is matching up your asset manager. I mean, I, mean I, I, I do do a talk on this about what we call a great investment opportunity. And nearly everybody then immediately seizes on what the, the, the parameters of the investment opportunity. Whereas I've always maintained you should focus a little bit more on the word great. Because it's only a great investment opportunity if it meets your objectives or goes towards meeting your objectives. And if this investment opportunity doesn't meet your your investment objectives, then why, why are you holding it? So I, I think, I mean, where the tweak comes in is that different uh, asset owners have different objectives. They have different risk tolerances. They have different time frames. Um, but it comes back to the fundamental starting point is understand why you're investing in the first place. This is what makes it different, doesn't it, David? I mean, this, you know, again, you know, you've, it's, it's a complicated topic, but you've, you've simplified it by, by asking a very deep question, which is the root of all the answers effectively, you know, what is the true objective of any financial entity and, uh, and then mapping potential investment options to, to how that can be best met. Brilliant. Changing tack slightly, David. A lot of um, lot of young people like to like to listen in to this. L listen to you on advice. What what advice would you give to young people entering the industry? 
As long as they're not put off by the fact they could be doing this for almost 50 years. <laughs> Although I do think that if you find a job that you thoroughly enjoy doing, as I've enjoyed for the last 47 years, it doesn't feel you feel feel like work in some respects. But but going back to answering your question, number one, don't be frightened to learn. Take every opportunity that comes your way. Don't wait for tomorrow. You know, seize the opportunity now. When when there's an opportunity to learn, uh, seize it. Don't be afraid to ask questions. We always say there's no such thing as a daft uh, question. When you ask a question of somebody, you're one of your peers or somebody more senior, or if you're an advisor, you ask somebody in the asset management industry, there's always a fear that the person that you're asking is going to be annoyed or think that it's a daft uh, question, and that can put people off asking questions. I would reframe it in a way that when when you are asked a question and you're able to answer that, most people then actually feel good about themselves that, A, not only have they been, they've been able to answer the question, but they've been able to help somebody improve their uh, level of education. So if the person asking the question goes, well, actually, if I ask you the question, then I am going to learn something, but also I'm going to make you feel better about yourself as well, then it's a win-win situation. Now, okay, you've got to get the, sometimes the right time because if somebody's incredibly busy, they may not want to. And there are some people who, who don't quite see it this way, but the vast majority of people that when you ask them a question and they answer, they actually deep down feel good about themselves. So, so I would reframe it that you're almost doing them a favor by asking them a question because you, you're almost going to them saying, right, I'm going to make your day by making you feel good about yourself because I'm going to ask you a question that you can then uh, sort of answer. And if they go into it with that mindset, then you know, don't be frightened to ask ask questions because that's how that's how you learn and that's how you build the network up and that's how you build up the relationship that these that this company is uh, is, is is based on next one i would say is don't be don't be frightened to challenge you know one of the advantages of uh, and, and this is something i've always said to people is if somebody asks me a question and my answer is well we do it this way because we've always done it this way and that's how we're always going to do it then probably that's the point at which i should uh, should have retired or <laughs> in in that you're then not open to maybe looking at a different way and one of the advantages of you know new people coming into the industry is they they're not coming in with any baggage you know you you, you what people call experience is also the reaction to to events that you've seen in the past. And this can then create biases that sometimes you're not always aware of. And so somebody coming in with, you know, a fresh face, which says, you know, why are we doing it this way? That can actually be extremely useful because, you know, if taken in the right way, you can then go, oh, actually, why are we? Why are we still doing it uh, sort of this way? So don't be afraid to uh, to challenge. The other one as well, which goes down really well, which I would encourage people to do, is that don't just point out an issue or point out a problem. At least have a go at trying to come up with a solution as well, because it's very easy to criticize. 
you know, you, 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 you see this a lot in politics when, you know, if we were in power, we would do this, 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 that and the other. And then they get into power and find find that it's actually not quite as, as easy. So at times it's very easy to criticize. Say, well, you know, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. And you go, OK, well, what what should we do? And I think that goes right through that if you're coming up and saying, well, you know, this doesn't seem to be working how about trying this? Because even if that solution, okay, you might have tried before or something, at least it shows that the person who is pointing out the problem is thinking about the issue. And certainly from position of management, you know, it, it's always welcome if somebody comes up and says, you know, we've got a bit of an issue here, but I think, you know, could this be a potential uh, solution? Because then you can work work through it. So. That would be some of my advice to uh, some of the youngsters. Just just seize every opportunity. And to be honest, David, the way you've framed it there, I think you know it's probably fair to say it's also applicable to people across the experience curve. I mean, the idea of listening with intent, being keen to learn. Some of the best leaders I know are always avid readers and keen learners. I mean, the, the audience can't see it, but uh, David and I have got our videos on and I can see a, a plethora of books behind David. So uh, there you go. Constant reading and learning will, will serve you well in the, in the long term. Uh, and then, David, before, before we sign off, uh, would love to hear what your plans are from here on. 47 years of continuous service means you probably didn't really have many sabbaticals or long, uh, long extended breaks. So uh, give us a sneak preview of what, uh, what's on your mind. So my plan post 31st of May is to actually have no plan. And it is, the, you know, having each, I've only changed jobs a few times and each time I've changed jobs, I finished on the Friday and started on the Monday. So I'm, I've not had a, a, a break at all. So the plan actually is to uh, wake up on the 1st of June with actually no plan, at least for a few months to then decide. I had a great conversation with somebody only yesterday about the the need to make a contribution. And and that is probably what I will miss the most post 31st of May of, of not being able to make a contribution. So I, I I expect to be able to make a contribution in some way. I just want to take some time out to decide what that contribution may be. Now, whether that's working in the local museum, doing restoration work, or whether it's running guided tours or even you know some role in the in the investment world i i don't know um but the one plan i do have is the lego build of the titanic which is down for september october as, as some of the listeners will know i've become quite an avid lego uh, sort of builder and so i've got quite a number of the big lego kits i still got the ferrari to do the loop coaster and in particular the titanic um and the titanic when i finally managed to buy it is down as a some 2023 build wow wow i know, I know these are very um very rare kits so uh, there you go maybe one of the one of the additional value adds you can bring is uh, having a keen eye and a, as a supplier of uh, rare lego kits uh to, to to fellow fellow lego enthusiasts uh, david there's there's not many words to to say thank you uh, i think for your contribution to the industry i know you have lots of parties and there'll be various people in the industry saying their own thank yous so for any listeners who found this conversation engaging please do keep an eye out and say thank you to david in person in one of many many send-offs but david this has been really really insightful really grateful for your contribution but also the the parting wisdom i think one of the benefits of media is uh, people can listen back 
uh, and when people Google David Clare, when your name gets passed around, people can hopefully listen in and take some nuggets from you. But uh, knowing you, I know you will forever miss mentoring and, and contributing to the society and industry at large. So I'm sure we'll see more of you around as time passes by. But thank you. Thank you for, for your time and your contribution. Thank you, Jazz. And, and, and as a parting comment, can I also just say thank you to all my colleagues, former colleagues, uh, friends I met within the asset management sorry, industry over many, many uh, sort of years. It's been a tremendous pleasure working and I have very, very fond memories of, of all my time in this industry. So thank you. This podcast is a marketing communication and is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. In South Africa, 91 is an authorized financial services provider.